from an adult in custody at Oregon State Penitentiary. Your account balance is $11.78. To hear the charges for this call, press or say 2. To accept this call, press or say 5. To refuse this call, this call will be recorded and subject to monitoring at any time. Thank you for using IC Solutions. You may begin speaking now. Well, hey, you. What's up? What's up? How you doing? I'm are good. You, are you we are on. Yeah. We are on. Yes. So, so wait, hold on a second. <laughs> so I wanted I'm to here. just say thank you for being on my show because I know it takes your time and then, you know, trying to get all this information out in such a short period of time. So I just wanted to say thank you. It means a lot. And I just, um, we'll kind of glide into some questions um, while I have you on the phone, but I know we have a very limited time, so I want to try to cover as much as I can. So, but I just want to say I appreciate Absolutely. you. Thanks for tapping in. You're welcome. You're welcome. I think this, um, the work that you're doing definitely includes uh, the voices of those of us that are incarcerated, and I think that's very important. Right. So, yeah, I appreciate you having me in the interview. Very cool. So one of my questions is, is because, you know, we know that you are an inmate over at the Oregon State Penitentiary. And, you know, when we talk about rehabilitation and stuff and, and guys getting out, um, just your opinion, this can be basically your opinion, or this can be, you know, even from some of your, you know, fellow inmate um, colleagues in there. So what do you think are going to be some of the most challenging parts of um getting released and back into the community? Well, I think there's generally three um, barriers. And the first one is most likely housing, like Shakir House. And I say Shakir because a lot of the times, even guys with housing options, whether it's with family members or friends, um, because how the probation um, contracts are set up, they have to go back to the counties in which they come from, even if they have alternative options. Right. And so, if, for instance, if you know, I'm from Monomah County and I fell due to gang violence and I had an opportunity to move to Salem, that might not be a viable option according to my potential uh, parole contract. And why and, is that? Because, you know, like, why would they want to put you back in a situation? Like, that's where the, you know, the stuff happens. So why do you think they put you back in there? Why or what do you think that they do that for? Um, and um, control, I guess you can say. Uh, a lot of the time is, um, I don't know, it's just, that's, a, that's a great question. It's right. one that we've been kind of posing to those who make decisions. It's like, why would you set people up for failure when they have an, a viable alternative exactly. to prevent themselves from engaging in activity that, led to prison so right. a lot of it is just you know uh policies or practices that you know that they're used to doing they're saying well you have to go to this specific county but do you really have to go to this county when the goal is to that person up for success right and you would think with like just that little bit of change to be made that somebody can thrive so much better in a completely new environment, right? Because if you're going back to the same environment that got you in trouble, um, you're dealing with the same people who maybe never got caught yet, you know, um, you are in that kind of environment. And then it almost seems like it leads you back in. So what do you see that the people that, 
you know, have been in there um, going back again? Well, so my belief is I'm not so I'm not sold on the idea of uh, or the concept of rehabilitation. I think rehabilitation in itself is, is flawed. It tells you that you need um, this specific help and, you know, the system is going to fix us, right? Mm-hmm. So a lot of the times what you see, you get guys playing a particular game. You know, they're staying out of trouble. They may take a program here that they're forced to take um, because of their, their sentencing mandates or the program treatment mandates. Where I, I, the model that I actually believe in is the transformative way we think and how we view ourselves. If you if we don't change our thinking and then you know actually change you know our our, our, our intent to engage in criminal in criminality, then I think guys are going to find themselves back in prison if if they're coming to prison and they're playing the game right. and they're not really changing the way that they see themselves. And, and generally, like, you know, their use, their value to the community, um, to their family or whatnot. They're just coming to prison. They're doing their time. They're programming just like right. the system suggests that we should versus actually trying to transform the way that they, you know, they think in general. Right. Right. And that's got to be, like, frustrating because there are people that really want, you know, a better life, that they're really in there trying. And yet, it, like you said before, it almost feels like the system is setting you up to fail. And so you got people in there that are just doing the bare minimum just to get their time over with, but they go back out and do the same stuff in the same area with the same people. And then you find yourself just in that kind of rabbit hole, that that system, um, you know, and so it can be keeping the prisons full. It could be, you know, doing, you know, dividing still. Um, so what do you think um, can be done on the outside? So with Elevate Him, as you know, a lot about, about what I do, um, do you think that's a good fit for somebody who's getting out of incarceration? Yeah, so one of the, the ideas that I know from past conversations is uh, um, mentors. Mm-hmm. You know, you got guys, and like when guys have accessibility to, to sponsors or mentors, and you know, because a lot of the times when you serve time, you don't really have this confidence. You you feel, you know, less than because there's so many, you know, felonious barriers set in motion um, and stigmas that's associated with your being a uh, convicted felon. Right. So I think having mentors upon release and even potentially working with this gentleman six months prior to coming out of the, the, the institution that they're housed in mm. can be substantial in their transition out there and building their confidence and letting them become more familiar with things such as this you know, how to go get Times their life. Times have changed, right? There's a lot of things that have changed when someone's doing 20 years, right? <laughs> Absolutely. Like, yeah. I've, I've been down 18 years. If I got out, like, I would definitely need somebody to assist me in a lot of things. Right. And just knowing that you have this pathway to be able to, you know, seek your help is really, really important. You know, and then we have the, the general idea of men not wanting to really ask for help. Right. So how do we provide support? Right. So do you think when, you know, the transition happens, you know, you, you get back in the community, what are some things that you think men need, you know, more of, you know, because when I was doing my research and I've shared this before, you know, even in my opening uh, podcast and stuff is that I'm a, I'm just, I believe that there wasn't anything out there. There wasn't anything geared to men specifically. 
there was women and children and, and which is all good and all great. But when it comes to men being a very large number in our community, in our workplace, in our penitentiaries, um, and obviously very high, you know, four times higher in the suicide rate, and yet we have the bare minimums for men, it, it just, it baffles me. It feels like it's all ass backwards. So when you look at those numbers and you look at, you know, men um, in the community and, and what support we don't have, what do you think we can do moving forward to get the guys the support they need? Like, what does that look like? Um, I mean... Like jobs and you, job, you mentioned housing. Job, you, and you, yeah. yeah, vocational training, things that make them feel like they're um, in a position to, to provide in a way to where, you know, they don't feel less there. You right. know, because a lot of the times, you know, a man's confident is shot, confident is shot because they're not able to, you know, put food on the table. So when you don't have that as an option, a viable option, you start to convince yourself that you need to engage in some type of activity to bring in some uh, income to right. your house. And, right. you know, if you don't have that and you're trying and you're being denied at different corners, then obviously that's going to put a lot of pressure mm-hmm. and it's going to create, you know, this, this PTSD, this, this, you know, this reoccurring trauma of that men experience. And then that's going to lead a, down a spiral hole of, you know, in doing what you know best to try to be a provider. Right. So I think jobs for sure. You know, just general educational opportunities. We know that, you know, um, providing education to people who, who are in prison can help stagnate um, or curb recidivism. And so having op- uh, educational opportunities for those who get out mm-hmm. to have a pathway to continue to support their, their, their transition and their transformation is, it can help a lot too. And again, it goes back to building their confidence, being right. able to see some value um, that they bring or just, you know, self-efficacy to where they're overcoming these barriers, but having that support and being, you know, provided a platform to have these conversations to even ask for that support. Right. And it's it's definitely, you know, empowering. Right. And I always, you know, I've kind of switched up my vocabulary, you know, a little bit when it came to the whole idea of help. Um, That's a very heavy word, right? Because if you need help, then there's, there's like a level of helplessness. And nobody likes that feeling. I don't care what gender you are, but you know, that's a very huge thing for men. And so when, when I look at things, you know, with what I'm trying to do, I'm trying to provide resources. I just want to be a connector. I want somebody to get out and say, hey, you know, I want to get plugged into some jobs. I want to have a nice fit for my interview. You know, I might have to go back and, you know, do some court or see a parole officer. So I want to look like, you know, I'm really about it. I want to learn things. And when you find out what they want to learn, like entrepreneurship, um, they want to get into maybe some co-parenting um, there's another great nonprofit out here in Portland, um, the Know Me Now. And what they do is they, they help men, you know, transition and women, but they also reunite, you know, them with their kids who might be in a DHS situation or a family. And it's a transition for everybody. And I think that's a really positive thing. So I think the more that we can connect on and how to serve better, because you guys are getting out regardless, right? So there's a lot that plays into that. And like you said, even the mental, where do you feel like guys are like mentally, you know, after, you know, going through maybe 18, 20 years, um, like yourself? Um, I think it varies. I think 
in general, like it doesn't matter how much time you have, you're gonna have that that added pressure after doing, you know, eighteen, twenty years in prison. And this is one of the things as one of the leaders inside the institution, I constantly encourage people that if the preparation, you know, the transition don't begin once you transition to society, it begins now. So right. you know, being able to tap into some of the things that are difficult, you know, it's talking about you know, some of the, the traumas that we, we've experienced, getting to the root cause of why we were engaged in, you know, drug and alcohol or, you know, how do we allow our mental health, our depression, our anxiety or, or PTSD or any mm-hmm. of these things that are normally stigmatized, stigmatized in the community, how do we address these things in order to become, you know, better men? I think right. generally a lot of people run from, from those conversations in, 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 in a a major today. thing that I've noticed. <laughs> you know, they don't want to talk about it because it looks right. like it looks like the weakness. Right, right. You know, I, you know, so it's you know, I talk to a lot of guys about it in here because it's one of my one of my roles, one of my my job in inside the institution is to work with mentally ill prisoners right. who are severely mentally ill, and uh, so I use my leadership to be able to you know facilitate conversations with guys who who, who don't really see themselves as mentally ill, but just to let them know it's okay to, you know, admit that you have a problem. It's right. the same thing with drugs. Admit you have a problem. You, if you don't, if you can't see that you need, you know, resources to better, you know, help empower you to become a better person or even a successful person, how, how are you going to reach that? Right. That yeah, level you, anyway. so just, you definitely got to address those traumas, right, and break through those barriers. And then I think that's where the growth comes in, right? If you, you know, I say this at almost every situation closed mouths don't get fed and that is one thing that you know you're going to have to get better at doing over time um because the circumstances can change you know for you but if you isolate you you just keep doing the same thing you think the same way there's no growth it's like you're stunting your own growth and in order for a community to really support um and and you know provide resources it's going to take the men to step up and make it very known what it is they need. Period. You know, regardless of the background. When you look at the makeup of men and the things that a lot of men have experienced and the pressure society put on men, um, traditionally, you know, with the patriarchal uh, traditional ideals, there's a lot of pain, right? Right. Yeah. Men, I mean, we see um, throughout our nation right now, you know, in, in any institution, you just see rivers of pain just pouring out and the sad part about it is you know in a lot of the conversations i've had one-on-one inning groups once i started to see the flow and guys start feeling comfortable in in discussions then you know the pain starts pouring out and a lot of the men are they really want to keep healing they just don't have a safe space right and or space in general that fosters a discussion towards healing because we we're constantly taught that we must wear this mask. Right. And if we're constantly wearing a mask, you know, lying to ourselves based on, you know, the the, the pressures of society or, you know, our, our peers or whatnot, then how are we getting to how are we getting to this place of healing? Right. You know, and that that's gonna take a a courageous act of, you know, allowing ourselves to become vulnerable. But how many spaces, not only in prison, but in society in general, where men have those, you know, spaces, you know, designed for them to have these type of discussions to, right. you know, work towards young. And almost like it, it has to be exclusively for them, 
you know, it's one thing to be like, okay, I need, I need these resources. And you're going to a place that is women and men, right. And children. Um, my whole purpose with elevate him was to provide a space and a need for men strictly. Like you're not going to find any other thing in there that, you know, is for everybody else. This is for you. And I think when they realize this, that, that they actually have something for themselves, they might take a little bit more ownership in that. You know, they might feel like you said a little bit more placent in, in their situation. They might um, loosen up a little bit with being vulnerable. And before you know it, you're really out here helping people based on where they are. Now, if you put them in a different situation, maybe they'll hold back. They won't want to talk about stuff because they feel like everybody in the room is going to hear. Um, so I wanted to kind of create that space and providing that. Um, when you when you look at like you mentioned, even like mental health and all these, you know, things and traumas and stuff. Um, do you think that men, let's, let's just hypothetically say, you know, you mentioned mentors too. If a man were to come in and mentor, do you think it would be perceived um, in a light heart mannered way? Or do you think it'll be kind of like a, why are you telling me what I already know type? It might be a little hostile. How do you get the, the message positively to one another? Let me make sure I have that correct. Uh, you said if men was to try to mentor other men, how yeah. would they respond? Yeah. Like, do you um, find, like, it would be a, a pretty open dialogue, or do you feel like, you know, it might be some testosterone they want to throw down or something? I don't know. Well, I, I think a lot of what I'm learning um, when you're trying to mentor people in, in any situation, whether it's youth, man, or whatnot, um, it, it takes it takes a, it takes a, a skill to a degree, and if you don't have a, a an actual training on how to mentor, whatnot, to be able to identify problems and um, whatnot, then what I also seen as successful is just peer to peer. Right. You know, so if, for instance, drug and alcohol, um, you know, guys from gang culture or someone who has overcome mental health, when, when people can be late to you, it's really important because they they understand. They start to view you as right. someone who can understand where they come from. You become credible in, in their eyes, and they're more receptive. Right. So, and it's the approach. The approach is really important too. Like if you're coming to try to mentor somebody, and you're talking down to them, and you're trying to force them to change, or you're trying to force them to see right. something. Uh, and a lot of the times, we we have to meet the the mentees at you know where they at in their lives. You know, and our job as a mentor is to push them on. So I think guys will be receptive to people who they see as serious individuals. Right. And they have a message and has walked their walk. Yeah, you definitely have to relate to people. You can't, you can't, um, you know, preach and not know, you know, the background of what you're saying. You know, there, there's, there's levels to it. You know, um, suicide being very high in men I mean for me I did I did my research you know I didn't want to get up on anything and, and not know what I'm talking about but once I did my research and I found you know the the things that were kind of geared in in that um, and I looked at my brother's situation who you know committed based of circumstances and lack of community support and you know he'd served you know about maybe 10 years total um, and you know, in the system. And then when he got out, he got his life together. He was doing really good. But when it came to like, you know, real situations, real life, um, it, it caught him up emotionally, 
you know, because he didn't have an outlet. He didn't have somebody he could go to. Now, oh, maybe he could have got a counselor or whatever if he was really feeling some type of way. But I think, like you said, a lot of men are trying to do the tough guy approach, trying to just muster through it because you get judged or, you know, it's a sign of weakness. And unfortunately, if, if they don't handle it uh, with mentorship, resources, community support, uh, we're looking at a, a, just another escalated, elevated, you know, uh, number in the suicide, you know, situation. So what are your, what are your takes on that? Do you, do you hear like a lot of guys in there talking about mental health and, you know, suicidal thoughts or anything like that? Guys don't like talking about suicide in no form or fashion, but like I said, I work with, uh, mental health, severely mental health guys. So, like, I'm around, I, I experience it, you know, more often than most. But right. mental health, you know, lately, um, like, I've been trying to do interviews and whatnot to try to constantly raise the awareness of mental health to let guys know that it is okay to talk about your mental health. Yeah, it's okay so to not be okay. Right. Yeah, so, like, so we have a push right now at the institution to raise awareness and to you know, pave a pathway so guys can tell you know what, it's okay if you know, if a person like, you know, Karan can get out here and, and, you know, get on a stage and talk about, you know, you know, struggling with depression and, you know, uh, anxiety and then 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 I can because a lot of people tell me, like a lot of my peers tell me that, you know, when I get up and I do public speaking, they say, you know, Karan, you're a really good speaker. Mm-hmm. And I was like, Well, that I mean that doesn't mean that doesn't mean I don't struggle with certain things. Like right. it means that you know I just been working through the pain because I was there was times where I was you know damn having panic attacks because of the anxiety of all the years that I spent in solitary confinement. So, right. but I let them know like you can work through it if you seek the help mm-hmm. that you need in order to get through it. And you have these discussions, and you start to see a value beyond whatever the diagnosis or whatever you, you're going mentally right and you know expressing your emotional balance as well i think that's mm-hmm. that's important this much yeah when i was going through just my own personal you know life trials and tribulations if you will you know i i geared into just reading um and so i know that when you have downtime a lot of guys are probably reading and they're probably you know getting into things when you talked about like the certifications and stuff and like the classes and, and different things that, you know, these guys can do in there. Um, I don't know really how to ask this question, but um, when they get released, what's the value of that? Do they actually get to apply that in like the real world? So there's different certifications. Like, so okay. for instance, this is, so I'm currently in a, a training right now mm-hmm. and it's a 40 hour training or well, 48 hour training and it's, to become a, a certified recovery mentor, okay. and uh, it's, it will be first. I will be. Uh, I'll get a certificate from an organization called Freedom and Recovery, and they they push it at uh, uh, OSCI, and then we'll take that, and then we'll. I'll be able to be. I'll be um, eligible to apply for an actual state certification through MACO, which is the Mental Health. Um, addiction certification board of origin mm. and so that's where I will be able to get my actual state certification now so there's a couple things that are tricky with this specific uh, certification so there's six laws or six crimes
signs that bar a person from being certified in the state of Oregon. Um, one of them is one of the ones that I'm convicted of, which is, you know, aggravated murder. I got life sentence. Yeah. And, but the, the prison, uh, the department has been able to get MACBO to recognize, to still certify those of us who are serving life sentences. Okay. Um, so we, our state certification will be recognized in the event that we leave prison then we would just have to reapply upon release. But right. everyone else who, everyone else that's in our court, our class can actually, um, their their certification immediately is transferable to the street. Okay, so that can that could potentially line them up for you know a pretty good you know success or a job um, in that field. Yeah. Okay. Absolutely. So are there any, so is there any other like programs so? When you're talking about, you know, different things, like I think, I don't know, maybe this is just me being naive, but so, can you be a barber, <laughs> a tattoo artist? Yeah, like for so, real? <laughs> so I, actually, I actually have that. So in the group living at the, in, in the institution, they have uh, what used to be the barber school. They don't, it's not a barber school no more, but they kind of like, they still cut hair and they train people without the certifications. And mm. um, one of the cultural clubs that, that's here at the institution um, actually is trying to um, get that, build that partnership up with someone to be able to bring the certification for Barbara um, certification. Okay, that, that would be really cool because think about that, that if they can actually partner up. Now the only thing you got to do is get licensed through the state. And if they can make that available to do, you're, you got a, a job, literally no pun intended, lined up, right? So I think it's, it's it's that to me would be rehabilitation that to me is yeah. saying here is something that you put work in you put time in um you did the the whole course that was needed and now you can actually make this a career you could be an entrepreneur with this you can start working under somebody else or an agency and then it's more likely like you're going to stay grounded because you work so hard right for that that's your reward so why would you mess that yeah. off so i think that would be more of the the, the gear I would like to see from it in there when you talk about, you know, rehabilitating. So there's an, there's another, uh, so uh, the African-American Culture Club here um, has been working on a, a proposal to try to bring computer coding to the institution to provide guys certification and uh, basically coding. Mm. And the reason being is because it's a, it's a viable vocation right now. And it's something that is relevant in the technological times. So you know, and you can rem you once you learn this, you can take that to the community and get a coding job pretty much down there anywhere. So we were starting to think in terms of even in COVID, like how do we provide jobs for the guys that are transitioning to the society during such a crisis right. like we have right now with COVID? And right. coding was you know, technology was definitely the answer. So the administration is been uh working with us on that so hopefully you know that is a success in the institution right no that would be really really i mean again these types of conversations need to be had so then people inside outside state workers you know correction officers probation officers they can all kind of you know advocate for this you know we yes. need people to speak up so then we can get the work done so then you guys getting out feel like you matter, you feel like you're coming into a supported society, you feel like, you know, you got access to resources. And, you know, 
you're supportive because at the end of the day, when you come out and you have nothing, maybe you burnt all your bridges with friends and family and you're literally on your own. That's where the rabbit hole and the, the, that hamster wheel starts to tick because you get out, you got to figure it out. There's no resources. You don't feel good. Your mental health is a little off, um, but they act like they're really putting you in a good position, but they're putting you back in the situation that you came from. You haven't healed. You know, you, you feel like nobody's here to support and you only got a couple options. Like you said, go back to the street and get back into prison or, you know, you take yourself out the game altogether. And I just want to make sure like moving forward, even from, you know, elevate him that I can maneuver, you know, my program, my resources to really be able to help. That's the goal. And, and, you know, and even hitting the juveniles, you know, the, um, the OIA, you know, getting connected with them just last week and, and things are moving along. I have a meeting again with them on Friday. So even if I can build this with the young guys and young men, um, that's the next generation coming forward. So hopefully there's some hope in that too, right? So we got to speak on that. Working with the youth is something that touches me because I came to prison so young. Right. You know, and I did a lot of juvenile time. So you relate, you I can speak to them. I can speak to them directly and say, look, man, you know, you don't have to, you don't have to walk this walk mm-hmm. that, you, you know, you've been told you should walk in order to become a man. And then one of the things that I know is just healthy views of what is, what is a man? Right. You know, There's you know, no like, book. You know, There's we, no book. We don't have a book on parenting. <laughs> we don't have no book on, you know, how to be a woman, how to be a man. We just go off of traditional values, how we were raised. One minute remaining. And, you know, we just, we just have to kind of gear it that way. So you're right. You know, what is a man? Yeah, and I think that's really important to teach both even men who grew up, you know, with toxic ideals of masculinity, mm. you know, and then be able to transfer that healthy ideal to you. Right. Absolutely. And, and they need the mentorships wanna... right now, so for sure. Absolutely. So, you know, we have a man, and I just right. want to say I really appreciate you having me on oh. and interviewing me and being able to get our voice here at the Oregon Penitentiary out to the community. I think it's very important for people to hear right. that there is men inside who care, who wants to become better men, who want to be a part of the community, who want to impact positively the society as much mm. as we possibly can. That's awesome. You know, what you're doing is amazing. So. Awesome. I really, really appreciate you. I know we're probably going to get cut off, but definitely um, we'll do this again. I thank you so much for your just your insight, and um, I wish you the best. You well. All right, we'll talk. That's it. All right, that was Did you expect something less? <laughs> I'm fl- I'm just gassing myself over here. <laughs> I said full last time. <laughs> you said that was surprising. <laughs> I'm not a Karen. <laughs> so that was, you heard the clarity and that was good? Okay. I was asking pretty good. I'm not going to blow your head up. I know. I don't, I don't want all that. But I just want to make sure that I'm doing enough to gravitate and catch people, the audience's attention, so they hear a message.
That's right. All right. So now you got you got your you got your four and mm-hmm. um, the, the, yeah, I'm still working on sheets and okay. um. Yeah. Well, we're gonna launch. Yeah. We want to launch it uh, beginning of the month. Okay. Since uh, so that'll be September. So you got yours in. Um, and we'll put them out. And uh, I'm really happy. Yeah. There was another guy that wanted to come on, and the funny thing about him, he was referred to me through somebody else so there was obviously some kind of network before he got to me and he was like I love what you're doing it's so great and um, we did a phone conversation and he is very woman driven he's a feminist so he really works with you know the idea of helping women but when he caught this he was like well shit now I'm kind of like torn you know what I mean and so but to have his insight as a woman speaking for them and then me kind of Going bantering back and forth with yeah. the views of men too. It was it was an interesting conversation, but yeah. he's down to do something too at some point. So well, yeah, and that's a, a conversation that needs to be had. We can't just you know have one side and the other have their side. You right. know, speak. Right. You know, I'd like to get a woman on here, yeah. and just to kind of break down, you know, what they see. You know, well, yeah, of course. What women see, what men see. Obviously, I mean, I obviously I talked to to the men. To get the information, but I think sure. the you know I had, like I said I had a friend that was a DV survivor, yeah. you know, but had there been some support in the community or whatever his direction would have been, would her outcome been different? You know, so having those kind of dialogues she, on women. Does she have a son? She does. See, she does. So there, there, there lies the, you know, there lies the hope. Yeah, and that, and that's the next phase of just you know having a conversation. So. Yeah, cool beans, easy peasy. <laughs> well, if you um, you can always continue to shoot. So, if you do you want me to do the intro? Uh, no, I mean you know, I mean because you have a you have an intro bumper. Or right. Record okay. One, it don't matter. Okay, it then that's fine. Yeah, because I, I like shows that seamlessly comes in. Right. Know? Yeah. Like, you know, the phone call. I mean that would be perfect. Yeah. I mean, after your intro, the bumper comes in. Uh, and then that the phone call comes up. <laughs> yeah, that's what I was thinking. <laughs> it would just awesome. it would just be awesome to have that piece, yeah. and then boom, they're on the phone. Yeah, yeah. Well, good job. Okay. Right on the phone. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, I appreciate you believing in me because, you know, whether 